Why the sacrifices? It's a serious question in Judaism, and of course, although they haven't been practiced for 2,000 years since the destruction of the Second Temple, it's a question still worth asking. And there are many, many answers given by the great rabbis, most famous being one by Maimonides. But today I want to explore another explanation given by the early 15th century Jewish thinker, Rabbi Yosef Albo, in his Sefer Ha'ikarim, his Book of Principles. Albo's theory took as its starting point not sacrifices, but two other very interesting questions. Why? After the flood, did God permit human beings to eat meat? Initially, neither human beings nor animals had been meat eaters, according to Voracious. So what, after the flood, caused God, as it were, to change his mind? The second, what was wrong with the first act of sacrifice, Cain's offering of some of the fruits of the soil? You remember that Cain, in the biblical story, offered some... Uh, vegetables or uh, grain um, as, as a sacrifice, whereas Abel offered animals. God's rejection of Cain's offering led directly to the first murder when Cain killed Abel. What was his stake in the difference between Cain and Abel as to how to bring a gift to God? This is Albo's theory. Killing animals for food is inherently wrong. It involves taking the life of a sentient being to satisfy our needs. Cain knew this. He believed there was a strong kinship between man and the animals. That's why he offered not an animal sacrifice, but a vegetable one. His error, according to Albo, is he should have brought fruit, not vegetables. He should have brought the highest, not the lowest of non-meat produce. Abel, by contrast, believed that there was a qualitative difference between man and the animals. Had God not told the first humans rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves in the ground. That's why he brought an animal sacrifice. Once Cain saw that Abel's sacrifice had been accepted while his own was not, he reasoned as follows. If God, who forbids us to kill animals for food, permits and even favors killing an animal as a sacrifice, and if, as Cain believed, there is no ultimate difference between human beings and animals, then I shall offer the very highest living being as a sacrifice to God, namely my brother Abel. Cain killed Abel as a human sacrifice. That, according to Albo, is why God permitted meat-eating after the flood. Before the flood, the world had been filled with violence. Perhaps violence is an inherent part of human nature. If there were to be a humanity at all, God would have to lower his demands of mankind. Let them kill animals, he said, rather than kill human beings. The one form of life that's not only God's creation, but also God's image. Hence the otherwise almost unintelligible sequence of verses after Noah and his family emerged on dry land. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God, God has made man. According to Albo, the logic of the passage is clear. Noah offered an animal sacrifice in thanksgiving for having survived the flood. God saw that human beings need this way of expressing themselves. They're genetically predisposed to violence. As the Bible says, every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. If, therefore, society is to survive, human beings need to be able to direct their violence toward non-human animals, whether as food or sacrificial offering. The crucial ethical line to be drawn is between human and non-human. The permission to kill animals is accompanied by an absolute prohibition against human beings, for in the image of God has God made man. It's not that God approves of killing animals, whether for sacrifice or food, but to forbid this to human beings, given their genetic predisposition to violence, would be utopian. So it isn't for now, but for the end of days. In the meanwhile, the least bad solution is let people kill animals rather than murder their fellow human beings. Animals' sacrifices are a concession to human nature. Sacrifices are a substitute for violence directed against humankind. The contemporary th thinker who has done most to revive this understanding, without, however, referring to Albo or even Judaism at all, is René Girard, the author of a very famous book called Violence and the Sacred. According to Girard, the common denominator in sacrifices is internal violence, all the dissensions, rivalries, jealousies, and quarrels within the community that the sacrifices are designed to suppress. The purpose of the sacrifice is to restore harmony to the community, to reinforce the social fabric. Everything else derives from that. In other words, according to Girard, the form of violence to which societies are very prone is vengeance, an interminable, infinitely repetitive process. Hillel used to say when he saw a human skull floating on the water, because you drowned others, they drowned you, and those who drowned you will in the end themselves be drowned. Sacrifices are one way of diverting the destructive energy of revenge. Why then do modern societies not practice sacrifice? Because, says Girard, there is another way of removing the principle of vengeance. This is what he says. Vengeance is a vicious cycle whose effect on primitive societies can only be surmised. For us, the circle has been broken. We owe our good fortune to one of our social institutions above all else, our judicial system, which serves to deflect the menace of vengeance. The system does not suppress vengeance, rather it effectively limits itself to a single act of reprisal enacted by a sovereign authority specializing in this particular function. The decisions of the judiciary are invariably presented as the final word on vengeance. So not only does Girard's theory reaffirm the view of Albo, it also helps us to understand the profound insights of the prophets and of Judaism as a whole. Sacrifices are not ends in themselves, but part of the Torah's program to construct a world redeemed 
from the otherwise interminable cycle of revenge. So we inflict violence on animals, but not on human beings. But the other part of that prayer, and God's greatest desire, is a world governed by justice. That, we recall, is his first charge to Abraham to instruct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And now let's ask a serious question. Have we moved beyond that stage in human history in which animal sacrifices have a point? Has justice become powerful enough a reality that we no longer need religious rituals to divert the violence between human beings. Would that it was so. In his book, The Warrior's Honor, Michael Ignatieff tries to understand the wave of ethnic conflict and violence in Bosnia, Kosovo, Chechnya, and Rwanda that has scarred the face of humanity since the end of the Cold War. What happened to the liberal dream of the end of history? His words, written in the 1990s, go to the very heart of the new world disorder. The chief moral obstacle, he writes, in the path of reconciliation is the desire for revenge. Now, revenge is commonly regarded as a low and unworthy emotion, and because it's regarded as such, its deep moral hold on people is rarely understood. But revenge, morally considered, is a desire to keep faith with the dead, to honour their memory by taking up their cause where they left off. Revenge keeps faith between generations. This cycle of intergenerational recrimination has no logical end, but it's the very impossibility of intergenerational vengeance that locks communities into the compulsion to repeat. Reconciliation has no chance against vengeance unless it respects the emotions that sustain vengeance, unless it can replace the respect entailed in vengeance with rituals in which communities once at war learn to mourn their dead together. So far from speaking to an age long gone and forgotten, the laws of sacrifice tell us three things as important now as they were then. First, violence is still part of human nature, never more dangerous than when combined with an ethic of revenge. Second, Rather than denying its existence, we have to find ways of redirecting it so that it does not claim yet more human sacrifices. And third, the only ultimate alternative to sacrifices, whether they are animal or human, is the one first propounded thousands of years ago by the prophets of ancient Israel. No one put it better than the prophet Amos. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and offerings of grain, I will not accept them. But let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream.